Well, good evening, everyone. Grace and peace. It is so good uh, to be back with y'all on Wednesday nights. Um, We really hope that uh, through August, we'll start building momentum. I want you to encourage y'all's friends to come uh, as we uh, begin our journey this year of walking with Jesus. Uh, Our Bible study for the next few weeks is going to be focusing on the place that Jesus grew up in. And uh, how that must have impacted his life, uh, his ministry, and uh, how the, it can maybe change the way that we think about uh, where we are, where we grew up. I uh, was reflecting with Pastor Kurt about a uh, tree in our yard at the farm that I grew up in, on in Tulia. So the, the house uh, started to get built in 1920. And, you know, no air conditioning back then, right? And so they had to get trees planted and hopefully fast-growing trees. So all on the west side of the house, there were all of these elm trees. And everybody says, right? And um, so they were there. They grew up fast and provide shade. But there was one elm tree on the southeast part of the house. And by the time I came around in the early 70s, this was probably 75, 76, that, ha- that tree began to get sick. And it was just ugly yuck. And my dad, shoo, cut it down. But that tree started to grow back. From one stump, it grew to about 12. And that became the most beautiful tree in our yard. This afternoon, after we talked, Pastor Kurt, I went to Google Earth to go look at that tree. Uh-huh. It's the only tree left. Oh wow! And I have not, I have not lived there. It's the only elm tree. There's still one of the pecan trees left. It's the only elm tree left, and I haven't been there in 33 years. Wow! And it's still there because of the decision my dad made to cut it down. Psalm 128 is going to be our starting point uh, tonight, and you'll kind of catch on to see where we're going pretty quick with our study tonight. So let's pray. Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to him. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Yes, this will be the blessing for the man who fears the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. And may you live to see your children's children. Peace be on Israel. Amen. Well, we're going to start out tonight looking at Galilee, the place where Jesus grew up. You might scratch your head for a minute and think, well, why don't we need to know about Galilee? Well, if we really think about who Jesus was, the importance of his message, I mean, God spent 33 years here on earth. And if you really want to know about him, 
I think you would look at every detail, every little stone, if you will, that you could look at to understand what was he doing all that time? And how does that living sort of affect his scriptures? So we're going to spend uh, a few weeks trying to build up what our understanding is so that when we start looking at scripture, we we can see the story like Steve's tree. Uh, There are experiences that Jesus undoubtedly has like that that inform the parables that he tells later on, just the way he relates to the world. If... uh, you know, you were a, a huge fan of somebody, let's say Elvis Presley. I mean, where's the one place you want to go uh, if you're really an Elvis fan? <laughs> you got to go to Graceland, right? And maybe if you expand a little bit, you could wander where he was born, where he grew up, first church he sang at. There's lots of different things. So to a certain degree, we want to, to do that with Jesus, uh, sort of go back to his hometown and walk around, talk to who knew him, looked at, look at his original home. We can't quite do that, but we're pretty close, closer than you normally can get archaeologically. And I, I think it'll be fun because once we get these stories together, you'll see Jesus tell them later on. And that'll, I hope, be kind of an exciting experience. But one of the biggest changes that has happened in modern society versus ancient society is the acquisition of food. How much did your grandparents that survived wars, depressions, how much did they think about preserving and storing food? A lot. I mean, can you remember going in their pantries and what did they have in there? Yeah, I mean, you were a slacker if you didn't have some food built up in there, right? I mean, my grandmother was a regular shopping mall in there. I mean, she, she had everything. And, you know, I used to think it was just Germans, but I think it was everybody in the U.S. They, they canned all sorts of stuff. I mean, we had canned cabbage. We had uh, just everything, apple butter and beans and corn and everything. Today, we live in just a different world, right? We, there's always going to be food until there's not, right? We got a little taste of no toilet paper and that scared us. But we, we just have a different conception. We always think their food is always going to be there. Americans have developed this great uh, technological invention that even poor people in our country are fat, right? I can tell you in no time in history has that ever been true. You could really pick, yep, he's pretty poor right there because you have nothing to eat. So a lot of the, the thinking that we have to sort of go back with is just how important food is and how important it would be to you to have a regular good supply for your, your family. If you worked at something, you wanted it produce. Uh, you didn't just plant trees, uh, you know, as hard as they farmed, uh, just to plant trees. You had to get value out of them. So one of the mainstays of crops that they use in Israel is, of course, the olive tree, which produces an amazing olive and then olive oil. But anybody, that's, has anybody ever raised pecan trees? I mean, as much as you raise a pecan tree, right? It's kind of a wild thing on its own. Um, I'm told the olive trees are sort of like them, but they're very stubborn. They're very fickle trees. Uh, they can die on a whim. Uh, they can produce one year and not produce another year. Uh, there's just there's a lot of struggle with them. And it takes a lot of years to get them producing. How long is it for a pecan tree? 
before it really produces? Does anybody know? Seven years, Daniel says. Yeah, that's what it is. They say with olive trees, although it varies now with modern uh, manipulated trees. But seven years is a long time to water and care for something that's not feeding your family. Again, you don't just put them up there for, for grands. I've but, got an olive tree in my yard. Two, year, two years ago, um, one of the compromise parents gave Kurt and I an olive tree each. Mine's still alive. Ha, ha, ha. I, I know. It's right. I mean, he, he has a green thumb. Mine died within like a week. I mean, like, um, and it's not the first olive tree I've killed. I've tried to grow them for years. And he so, just, yeah, we put it in the ground right after Snowpocalypse, if y'all, y'all remember that. Uh, we got it right before Snowpocalypse, so right, uh, put it in. And so it looks like it's grown about that much. I mean, it looks really healthy, but it's grown that much. So if we're around here for seven more years, Kurt, maybe we'll be starting to eat olives then. Yeah, and that that would be a great thing. Um, But imagine, again, you're doing this, and, Daddy, I'm hungry. Yeah. Um, What's wrong with that tree? Why is it growing? So when they discovered, this is the way all of this sort of interacts together, what makes something good? What makes a tree good? produces fruit it feeds me and my kids and what's more it's every year it's having a good harvest if you can get a tree like that it's something that you really pass on to generations you'll still see this in israel they are very very protective of their olive groves Uh, you go and mess around uh, with olive groves and they're going to hurt you. Uh, you can tell how bad the conflict is between the Israelis and Palestinians because sometimes they do take axes to olive groves against each other. And it, 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 that's deadly serious. I mean, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but it, uh, this is generation of work in these things. So they produce, they take care of your family. When one dies, and I'm told they, they can, Again, Israel, for the most part, relies on dry land farming. So it could be a dry year, maybe too many dry years. It could be disease, bugs, who knows. This tree dies. It's fed your family for years. What do you do? You don't just cut it down and burn it. I mean, olives are amazing for Israel. We've talked about it, but it's one of their three major crops. And in a way, it's probably their favorite crop, although wine may compete for that title. But you can eat it. You can eat it all year round. Um, You mix it with a little bread, and this is their daily meal, their daily bread. And the olive oil mixing with the bread makes a legumen, which is a protein. And so Israel is particularly blessed in that they're daily getting a protein. Even Romans don't get that. Uh, the average Roman is relying on a kind of gruel, a paste. It's very, very wealthy to get access to meat. But Israel sort of has it built in. So you can feed your family the whole year. You also can use it, like we've talked about, for lamps to burn at night. It's also used for religious purposes. It's used for medicine to put on your skin. If you ever want to know what Jesus smelled like, it's olives. I guarantee you, all those people... <laughs> You can smell a Jew coming. Here he is. It's better than the Romans smelling like rotten fish oil, but Jews would have smelled like olive. They just, it was their food, their medicine, everything. Also, most important for them, this was a cash crop, if you will, for them. 
they could export it. And there was great demand. Every time we find a shipwreck in the Eastern Mediterranean, they start going through the jars. Oh, there's olive oil. Oh, there's olive oil. Uh, the Egyptians from the Romans, the Phoenicians, Africans, everybody, if they could get it, they would <clears throat> take olive oil. So again, it could really, really help a family if they needed to buy other goods or just accumulate wealth. Uh, olive oil was a great, great way to store that. So again, your tree dies. That's the generations of your family that have cared for this thing. Is there not something, anything that can be done? And they had one trick, one <clears throat> hugely symbolic act. They would take what the Psalms was talking about, another little shooted olive tree that was coming up. Uh, they would dig it up carefully. And then they would go and chisel. They would cut down. I've seen them cut down the olive trees, and sometimes they just cut branches off, depending on what's happened to the tree. But they would then chisel out a part of the tree and plant that little shoot inside of it. Now you think, what, what good would that be? It is, of some trees, there is a process whereby that shoot can reanimate the dead stump. What the little shoot is doing is connecting to the tree and it'll connect to the root system. And so let me show you some photos of them doing this. So that's just sort of a stock uh, tree trying to do it. But this is actually in Israel an olive tree that's been uh, grafted in. So you can see where they sort of dug it out. And this is what begins to happen. So you've got the dead, uh, in this case, that really had been uh, chopped down. And go to the next one. I mean, very quickly, you're back in business. You're able to use that root system and channel the resources into it very, very, very quickly. And so for them, this becomes a powerful religious symbol. This is, again, like Steve, he had this experience. Cut down the tree and it's still there. Jesus would have seen this all over the place. Do you know what this is called? Sometimes God is subtle and sometimes he's not. In Hebrew, this is called a Nazareth. Now let that rumble around your brain for a minute. Who else had experienced moments in which the tree had been cut down? The nation had been cut low. People had lost. People had died. And how longing were they for this Nazareth, this Netzer, that could come in and bring new life back to the whole body? Obviously, this is an image that's used for us as Gentiles being brought into the tree that God had been developing for thousands of years. It also is a powerful sign for the Jews that the Messiah will come and he will be a Nazareth. He will be one who revives the dead tree again. So Jesus's hometown is named after this. That's pretty cool. It also is the source of many prophecies that occur at the end of the Old Testament telling us about who the Messiah will be, what he will be capable. So I think Pastor Steve is going to take us through those. Yeah. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1. Excuse me, Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. 
And this is a passage that, that you may be familiar with that we read around Christmas time. Uh, because Jesus is literally this shoot that is, uh, that is uh, springing forth. Uh, Isaiah 11, verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is? David's father. Very good. From his root, a netzer. You know, there's these couplets that are good. This is, this is poetry right here. And so that's the, the second occurrence of it is uh, the netzer, the Nazareth. Uh, from his roots, a netzer, a branch. Mine says branch, but it also could be shoot there as well. Will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel, and the spirit of might. Look over at verse 10. In that day, the netzer of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people. The nations will rally to him as a resting place will be glorious. Now, hopefully you're kind of starting to see the irony in this is that an ancient, Jewish, an ancient Jewish assumption would be that that would take place where? If this is connected to Jesse, connected to David, that this would happen in Judah, and more precisely in Jerusalem, right? Uh, where David uh, was, of course. And the irony is, is it happens far away from there, far north in territory where there are not only Jews, but there are Gentiles, and that there are mixing with each other, and it's just a it's very interesting uh, place. I want to just share with you a couple of more spots how this gets picked up in uh, the New Testament, one of the peculiar places. We always got to go spend some time in Revelation, right? Mm-hmm. And so flip on over to Revelation. Revelation chapter 5. <clears throat> you're familiar with Revelation, this is the part of the story where um, the scroll is uh, sealed up and there is no one found worthy to open the scroll. And John is devastated. He's weeping because no one is found worthy. Uh, I wept, this is verse 4, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep, see the lion of the tribe of Judah. Just circle that because it's like everybody gets fixated on the lion. It's, it's one of my pet peeves, right, Kurt? It's okay. Everybody gets fixated on the lion. Oh, when Jesus comes back, you better look out because he's going to come and get you like a lion would get you. You hear something like that? Those kinds of things. Why don't we have anything in Christian bookstores or any memes? That's where Kurt and I see these things. Memes that say, no, the root of David's coming. Mm-hmm. The Netzer. Like, that would, that would, that would preach, right? This, this, these images that Pastor Kurt's been, been talking about. The root of the shoot uh, of David. That's where he's referring back to Isaiah, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So that's the image that they're hearing. And then what does John see? A lamb that was slain. It's always important to kind of keep those things in the back of your mind. Revelation twenty two sixteen talks about this shoot uh, as well. Romans fifteen twelve. 
or other places where this root bears down. And then if you want to kind of where all this kind of comes into focus in the Gospels, if you look at John chapter 1, John chapter 1 verse 43, it kind of gives some focus on where Jesus uh, was from. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He'd just been baptized, and so he was making his way back up north. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida, or Bethsaida. And Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. Kind of stow away uh, the end of Deuteronomy and the beginning of Genesis when there was going to be a seed. That's what this root often refers to as a family line, right? And so remember that the, a seed of the woman would do what? Crush the serpent's head. So kind of channel that. Uh, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. What we've just been talking about in Isaiah. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Verse 46. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. I don't know if y'all are fans of The Chosen. Any fans of The Chosen? So, uh, episode two of season two. Uh, When you get home tonight, kind of go to the middle of that episode. And they... Are talking about they they uh, they do this scene here and if they have Nathaniel and Philip uh, sitting next to each other Nathaniel is dejected for something that ha- that recently happened to him and it is so cool how they respond they they uh, they make this scene here Nathaniel mathi- maniacally starts laughing and they do such a great job describing Nazareth that's what Kurt's going to do. So we're reading all of this, and again, we, we hear them, we hear these stories, we're faithful, we're worshipers, so we pick up Nazareth, we pick up Galilee, we get that there's something mm, a little off about Galilee in general, but about Nazareth in particular, and so we wonder, what, what is it? And that's what this study is really designed to help us do, to get into those details. Just think about what you know about the Netzer now, the, the Nazareth. How would you translate that quickly? It's kind of an involved concept, isn't it? I mean, this tree sprout coming out of a tree, bringing new life. One of the titles they give Jesus, of course, is Jesus of Nazareth, which you now see has that double meaning, right? On the one hand, he's from this town that we'll look at, but he's also sort of bearing this image that he is the Netzer. Uh, He is what has been prophesied will bring life back to everybody. So we need to take a look at the region of Galilee first. So let me give you the sort of overview uh, first. So I think this map is of Judah. Yeah, uh, not, not that one. Yeah, that'll work. So I'll show you a lot of maps. I apologize. I'm, I'm addicted to maps. But so we have down here in the south... Judah. And this is all that's really left of the former kingdom of Israel. The reason we call Jews Jews today is because they're, for the most part, from the tribe of Judah. 
So the Romans just started calling them Judeans, Jews. At one point, their, their kingdom, well, I shouldn't say empire, but a kingdom had extended all the way north. But that had been almost 800 years ago, under the time of David and Solomon, when Israel was one nation, north Israel and south Judah. We'll go through the history in more detail, but in Jesus' day, the only place that Jews really lived and had their own country was here. Jesus is from here in Galilee. So it's separated by the Samaritans. And do Jews get along with Samaritans? No. There's a deep pathological hatred between the two. Uh, Jews do not consider Samaritans true worshipers of God and vice versa. And there is constant animosity. In fact, when Jews travel back and forth, for the most part, they'll go around to avoid each other's territory. Jesus will, for the most part, but sometimes he does go through Samaria and there's lots of crazy adventures. But like uh, Chosen was telling us, a Jew living here is still in a Jewish society, still with a temple, still practicing life. This little slump of land has been controlled by foreigners for 800 years. Now there's a big question, and I don't want to get too deep into the history now, but about 721 uh, starts this process when the Assyrians invade they destroy the land and they haul off into exile probably, well we know, uh, the, the nobles, the craftsmen, uh, the literate, people with skills. We're not sure how much of the other population was left. If they were just decimated or they were left on the farms. This is really hotly debated in archaeology. I can tell you right now the theory is leaning towards the area was depopulated. Archaeologically, we have a gap in material remains from uh, late Iron Age really into the Persian period. Now, I say that with some caution because in archaeology, you're always taking little pot shots. You don't get to excavate the whole country, right? So you can't say for certain that this whole region was depopulated. But every major city that we've looked at that was in this area does show a lack of material remains. There's no pottery. There's, there's no life debris from those periods. So people were either living in other areas or they were not living in the area. So for 800 years, other people had controlled this area. Think about how much we have changed from our English uh, forebearers. You know, we've been apart for England for but two centuries and some change. Are we just like the English today? No, thank God. No, um, no. Um, they're, they're good people. They're fine. But uh, we've changed in just two centuries. How much do you change in eight? If there were any Israelites left in this area, and as I said, uh, who knows really? Probably some but they've been living with others for so long that they're not, they can't possibly culturally be like us, the Judeans would say. Again, we'll go through this in greater detail, but just to give you the, the big picture here, about 100 years before Jesus' birth, there are a group of Jewish kings that come to power in Judah, and they want to bring back the glory days. So they will conquer 
Idumenia, which are the old Edomites, the red people from the south. If you remember Jacob and Esau, uh, these are Esau's people. Now, unfortunately, this includes Herod's family. So aren't they glad they conquered that area? But that's a different Bible study. So they conquer Idumenia, they conquer Samaria, and they conquer Galilee, which they've not been to for almost 800 years. And they decide, you know what? We want to take this land back. There's some debate as to who the people were in the land. There were no nobles. There were no uh, like kings or, or mayors that they could deal with. There were just a lot of farmers. And so the, the Josephus, the Jewish historian, says the, the, the kings of Judah, the Hashemian kings said, you must be circumcised. You must follow the law of God as we define it in Judah, and you must pay us taxes. And the people in Galilee said, that is good by us. Now, the Idumeneans and the Samaritans did never agree to this. But these Galileans said, yeah, it's, it's good by us. So to further this, uh, we have 23 forts uh, that were reoccupied by the Judeans, and they also call for settlers. Settlers from Judah to move north to resettle this land with good Jewish stock. The ancestor, probably the grandparents of Joseph and Mary, were in this group. And you can see they go up there and they start a little town called Nazareth. Do you see what they were trying to do, thinking about? Here we are, this little shoot from Judah that's going to be planted here in this place that had been a dead stump for nearly a millennia, and we're going to bring it all back. And they were right. They just didn't know how right they were. This whole region will be very, very segregated. There will be little Jewish towns, and then there will be big Greek towns. This area had been heavily fought over, and so there is very little mixing amongst uh, the Gentiles and the Jews. The Jewish towns tend towards the smaller size, and there's two types of them. There are the settlers' villages, of which Nazareth is, and then there are this old Israelite farming areas that you see in Jezreel that are older. Um, so that's enough history of the area. Let me show you what it actually looks like. Because to feel it, to see it, is, is great. So uh, this is uh, looking over the Jezreel Valley. And this will be one half of what makes up the Galilee. This is arguably the most important part for most of its history. This is literally the best farmland in all of Israel. It's Israel's breadbasket. It's still, I mean, this is what it looks like today, but in ancient times it seems to have looked like exactly this. It's about 20 miles long, and this land is so valuable that in ancient times, as they do in modern times, they build the city on the foothills. So you're sort of up on a mountain range here, and then there's another one over here. So it's sort of a bowl shape, and you have just this, this incredibly fertile land. I'll read you some ancient quotes in a minute about how, how special this place really was. Uh, but in a sense, that's the view that Jesus had growing up. 
He is growing up for the most part in a farming community. Now, Nazareth is not primarily a farming town, but the area that he lives is primarily farming. So go to our next slide to give us a feel for this. So what I just showed you is this area right in here. So Galilee includes the Sea of Galilee up here uh, for this region around here. Let let me show you a better map that will, will help us. And I need to find a way to get this to you. Uh, this is the Bible in stone. <laughs> this is uh, all of Scripture almost laid out um, in a satellite image. So what I just showed you was the Jezreel Valley. And there is Nazareth right there. So this little town in the foothills overlooking this valley. And it is, it is everything. Uh, I, I've been told by one of my professors that this is one of the, the hot button issues for Israel today. There's a lot of rockets that fly in Israel and they aim at the south and they aim at Tel Aviv and they all over the places. But one place that they would go to war over is the Jezreel Valley still today. Uh, Israel can feed itself and that's primarily uh, because of the Jezreel Valley. Um, there is something special about the rain clouds that come over and they get captured in this little valley. There's a little hill right here. But even this area in here is very, very fertile. Um, but once it gets caught in here, there's great rain. Um, and, and we'll talk about that. But just to uh, check out the neighborhood. Uh, so Mount Carmel. Does anybody remember what happened there? It was the confrontation with uh, the priests of Baal back in the Old Testament when we had uh, this challenge between God and the priests of Baal. So there's a monastery up there, and I'll show you a picture of it in a second. It's one of the best views, I think, of into the Jezreel Valley today. Some of the best food I've ever had in Israel is at a monastery there. They make a potato soup. That's to die for. It's rich and creamy and really good. But so you have Nazareth. Uh, and Nazareth today has grown into the largest city in the Galilee. In ancient times, it was nothing. <laughs> it, was a, it was really a trailer park, but uh, it was a famous trailer park. But right across from the Jezreel Valley is the old fortress of Megiddo. Now, this should give chills in your spine because Megiddo is where we get the word Armageddon. More battles have been fought for this little fortress because it controls the mountain access into this valley and also the northern routes. So really from the time of the Egyptians all the way through World War I, uh, modern times, Megiddo has been incredibly fought over. And so this is why the biblical writers pick up the phrase Mount Megiddo, which is in Greek is Harm Megiddo. Uh, so we get our word Armageddon. So Nazareth, the shoot is right across from the end of the world. Uh, Can't make this stuff up. Uh, Right behind Nazareth and certainly the way, it's about 18 miles here to the Sea of Galilee where Jesus is constantly going back and forth is Mount Tabor. Does anybody know what happened Mount Tabor? Christians, super important. This is where Jesus had the transfiguration where he was seen in a divine form and completely changed how the disciples looked at him. So again, as a little boy, it would have been right there. And I'll show you another picture. It really stands out more than this is showing. And of course, we have the Jordan River moving downhill into the Dead Sea. See, Galilee is amazing, clean, fresh, great water, and it just goes into a pit. (laughs) It never comes out. So uh, 
this is Jesus's home. So Jezreel, um, and we'll see a little bit more of it, and then we'll move into Galilee and look how uh, really mountainous and, and difficult to travel it was. So going to our next slide, give us a sense. Yeah, that's just another breakdown of the map. Um, but my eyes, I can barely see that. So let's go to the next one. Is it a video? Okay, why don't you show that? So this is what I was talking about, Mount Carmel, the, the monastery. And that's Mount Tabor. See what I mean? It really sticks out. Uh, this is modern day looking into uh, Jezreel. And it sort of looks like West Texas, doesn't it? <laughs> so that's probably good. We don't, we don't need to go through that whole video. He, uh... So that's one half of it. Uh, we'll keep going. Go to the next slide. Yeah, just go to the next one. It's the quote. Okay, well, let's show that. So I told you that the Jezreel was renowned for what it produced. Again, we have an ancient source, Josephus, and we'll talk about him because he actually fought in the Galilee. But in describing his homeland to the Romans, he says this, skirting the lake of Genesar, and we have to say for a minute, in Jesus' time, the lake was called Kinneret. Now, because of Latin and the other region, uh, reason, reasons, we've come up with Galilee. The funny thing is, uh, and the, I should have lived in the ancient world because spellings vary a great deal in the ancient world, and nobody gets upset. <laughs> uh, literacy was very different. Um, than what we have today, we think there's absolute one spelling today. There's lots of spellings. Uh, and again, you're dealing with Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and Latin. So good luck. But it was called Kinneret. The reason for that, unfortunately, is probably uh, there was a Canaanite god named Kinar. And that was the name of it. So the rabbis, for example, later on will not use the word Kinneret because they don't want to keep this God's name around. So it's like Thor town or something. So they call it the Sea of Tiberias, which is after a Roman emperor, which I don't think is much better. But for us, and you still see this sometimes in scripture, they'll say the Sea of Kinneret. Um, it's Galilee. So no, no confusion there. So but Complete aside, uh, the Gospel of John is the one that refers to the sea as the Sea of Tiberias. The rest of them, it's Galilee normally or Kinesaret. Yeah. But also bears their names. Eliza regions whose natural properties and beauty are very remarkable. There is not a plant which its fertile soil refuses to produce. And its cultivators, in fact, grow every species. The air is so well tempered that it suits the most opposite of varieties. The walnut, a tree which delights in the most wintry climate. Where's the walnut native to? You know? Europe, northern Europe. Uh, still, do we have a lot of walnut trees in Midland? <laughs> you don't have enough water <laughs> for a walnut tree. And that's what he's saying. You know, we're from Judah. We're not used to walnut trees, for God's sake. But somehow, they grow walnut trees. A tree which delights in the most wintry climate. 
here grows luxuriantly. Beside palm trees, which thrive on heat, and figs and olives, which require a milder atmosphere. One might say that nature had taken pride in thus assembling, by a tour de force, the most discordant species in a single spot, and that by a happy rivalry, each of the seasons wishes to claim this region from their own. So that, that's enough. I mean, there, there's, there's more to it. But uh, this is pretty great. Uh, this, this Jezreel Valley. And so when Jesus starts to tell stories about farming, he's not kidding. Uh, he really did see some extraordinary things. Probably saw a walnut tree. Never told the parable about a walnut tree because nobody in Judah would know what he was talking about. A walnut. What are you, nuts? Um, so <laughs> continuing on, they had day palms, but no, no walnuts. So, so we go to the next one. Yeah, just skip over the quote. I mean, they talk about other things they grow. So this is from Mount Megiddo towards Nazareth. So Nazareth would be right about there. So again, this is the world that he looked at. So continuing on, this is Nazareth itself. It's in the foothills. Um... And I have to tell you, sort of, we talked about it before. This is the Nazareth village. Nazareth is not an ancient city. It was part of these settlers that came up here and started about 100 years before Jesus. But it, it's not any kind of biblical city. What it is, is primarily a town for stonemasons. They are working at a regional capital that's being built by one of Herod's uh, sons just over the mountain. Uh, Stonemasons had become uh, very prevalent when Herod was building the temple. The Jews did not have a lot of technical skills in terms of, of architecture or stonework. So Herod really had trained a whole generation of young men how to work in limestone, which is very plentiful in the Jerusalem mountains. When the temple was done, all these guys are unemployed. <laughs> so I've talked about this before, but I think it's funny. Funeral homes always sell you a lot of junk. So one of the things that we use to date this period, the second temple period, is there's these limestone boxes called ossuaries. It's a Greek word for bone box. And all they are is just a square uh, box made out of limestone with the middles carved out and a little lid to it. And so these stonemasons start selling it to people to bury their relatives in. The Jews never, ever did this before. But you have all these unemployed stonemasons. So, you know, if you love your grandma, mind you, buy her a box, you cheapskate. You know, it's the same as today. You know, if you really loved your husband, this $10,000 oak coffin will be just what they wanted. <laughs> no. But anyway, so uh, all these stonemasons are looking for uh, work. To be in Sipporah, where they're building a government capital, and you have, again, government structures going up, which are going to take a lot of limestone, would have been a boom for the people in Nazareth. And that's where these stonemasons seem to, to collect. This is what Scripture is actually describing to us what Joseph did. It's one of those horrible mistranslations that King James gave us, and we just can't get past we read that he was a carpenter, which is a tecton in Greek. And yes, tectons work in building things, but uh, 
in Israel, what do you build with? Rocks. I mean, if you go to Israel today, that's like their greatest produce is rocks. <laughs> it's everywhere. Farmers joke, like here, you know, they plow their fields, they pull up all the rocks, and the next year they plow the field and they pull up all the rocks because they just keep rising. They have a crop of rocks every year. So when King James heard, oh, he's a carpenter, well, in England, carpenters use wood to build houses. They don't in Israel. He's a stone worker. So... Uh, if we can go back to some of the photos of Nazareth Village, um, obviously the archaeology of this town was uh, was fantastic, and you can sort of see. I mean, this is typical Jewish construction, and then look at this. This is not. What is this? This is limestone lintels. So there's actually carving and work going on here. So it's one of the reasons that we know the occupation of this town. But. Uh, in the wars that follow Jesus' death, this town will be abandoned. And what becomes Nazareth is further up the hill. So this was sort of a perfect archaeological site for us because there's nothing after it. Um, and there's nothing before it. So we don't need to dig deeper. We don't need to destroy this layer in order to find out more information. So actually, in a beautiful act, the Israeli Antiquity Service sold this site to a YMCA. How crazy is that? But YMCA's in Israel are a little bit different. They're almost like government parks. So one of the highlights, if you ever visit Israel, is to vi visit this, this village. It's literally the Nazareth village where they have taken the ruins and they've rebuilt them. So not all of the city has been rebuilt, but most of it. And it's not big. It's a trailer park. Let, let me show you a couple more photos. Uh, yeah. No, they're not um, at all. This is one of the larger houses. I love how it's sort of falling down the hill. <laughs> um, but again, honey, I gave you a good lintel. Look at this. This is so good. You build beautiful things that work, and this is what I get. I love this building for two reasons. Uh, one is falling down the hill, but that is an addition room, and so is that. So the way they did this is they had the center room uh, that the family pretty much slept in. A lot of times you'd have a basement for uh, food storage. It would be colder if you dug into the ground, and they'd have a cooking area, which is some of this stuff. But that was it. Uh, everybody's sort of in there together. When your son wants to get married, it's his responsibility to provide a home for his wife. Now, because of Israel's tribe status, you don't just go off and get your own land. You build a room on your father's house. So that would have been the original structure. And then this is the son. And then I, don't, I, I could go back and read the report. I think they determined which one came first. But uh, one son and then another son. But they're building a room on their father's house. So as soon as that room was done, then they could move their bride in and they could start the family. So you know how people love to live on the farm together. This is like that, just a little more intimate. But you'd have your sleeping room and then grandma and grandpa's and then, I guess, brother and sister-in-law. Um, but Jesus, again, uses this language. When the disciples ask him in John, what is heaven like? He says, don't be afraid. In my father's house, there are many rooms. 
And when everything is prepared, I will come again and get you so that you might be with me always. I can't say this about most archaeological sites because they're too big. It could be a different period. So many things. Nazareth is special. There's nothing before it. There's nothing after it. Not really. Jesus would have seen this building. So did he actually get the story from this? It's quite likely. Again, this isn't the only one in town that shows signs of this, but it's just the best one. Now, to be clear, this stuff has been rebuilt. Um, it, it's restoration, um, but they, they don't add things. They, they keep uh, the feel of it. So just to walk around this village today is a spiritual experience. It really, really, really is. So um, just to continue on, uh, we got a few more uh, places to see. This is a typical Roman town. So what's, this is actually Pompeii. Um, and l- let, let me show you this, the next one, which is Sepporus. Well, that's a model of a Roman town. Uh, that's Sepporus. This is the place uh, just up the hill, uh, less than maybe two miles from where Nazareth is, that the workers are going to build stuff. This is where Joseph would have worked. Uh, look at that. I mean, that's a central street. We've got these beautiful mosaics. They've just uncovered these in the 90s, and they're opening them up to the public, but they are fantastic. Uh, I think we have another photo of a closer up of them. I mean, look at that. This is beautiful. There is no record of Jesus ever going to Sephorus. There's another even bigger town, uh, Tiberias, which he had to pass every time he went to the Sea of Galilee, about 10,000 people. And he never tells us he went there. We're going to explore what this means. I mean, Jesus really was selective in where he went. These are Greek areas, these are Roman areas, these are areas rife with all of the excesses that go on uh, with Greco-Roman culture. And there is no disciple called from these areas. Sipporah is closer to Nazareth than any place he gets a disciple from. His dad worked there. Uh, Why did he... Either he never went or he never told us that he went. Uh, And so again, it's it's just fascinating um, to see this and then to see where he grew up just a little worker's village that was servicing this area. Say what you will about Rome and its brutality. Uh, They knew how to build cities. Uh, City planning, they stole from the Greeks, but they were masters. Uh, To go back to the model for a second, uh, this was Caesarea Philippi on the the ocean. Uh, It's further out, the Jezreel Valley. Um, So cities... Very near Jesus are going to have harbors, they're going to have marketplaces, they're going to have gymnasiums, schools, temples, courts, archives, hospitals, very civilized places. Do you know what Nazareth has besides a few buildings? YMCA, yeah. There's only one non-private building in all of Nazareth. Well, yeah, and there's just one. The, the other are the wine pit. <laughs> it's not really a building, but it's where they got their liquor. Um, 
It's a synagogue. And I'll bring you some pictures of it. It's a small affair, it really is. But yours truly gets massive goosebumps uh, to stand in the synagogue in Nazareth and realize who preached here before you. It's, it's really awesome stuff. So what a, what a surreal experience to see this world, but to live in sort of secluded minority Jewish areas. Uh, this is what I mean. There is not a lot of mixture between Gentile and Jew in, uh, in the Galilee. Uh, the Romans, the Greeks, the Syrians tend to have all the money, uh, and Jesus is staying in his communities. So, uh, next slide. Is it the Assyrian video? Okay. I won't go there. We probably should stop. Um, we're just hitting the tip of the iceberg, but a few tips or a few things we did know. Yeah, I mean, do, do you feel like you know it a little bit better? Can, can we do the Galilee video? Let's do that one. So I've shown you the Jezreel. Let me take you through the mountains of where Jesus went. So I've told you he didn't go to the big cities, Sipporah and Tiberias. But he does go to a series of fishing villages on the north side. And this is the route they would have taken. Uh, beautiful in its own right. Yeah. So this is coming out of the mountains uh, that Nazareth starts, and it's moving down towards uh, the Sea of Galilee. This is called Mount Arbel. It's important for us for a number of reasons. One, I'll just say now, this is the area that the Sermon on the Mount was given. So again, the one that preached there is... Uh, and I get it tickled. Doesn't that look like West Texas? I mean, you could be in the Guadalupe. Um, but sometimes when you watch movies about Jesus, it doesn't look anything like that. It, it, I don't know where that... And Chosen does better, because Texas looks like um, Galilee. Ponder that for a minute. Um, but it's a, it's a beautiful place. And in the background, you see the Sea of Galilee itself. So today it is a resort town. <laughs> uh, the tourism section is on the north. You have sort of down in this area all the, the lake cabins, and they're fun. I've done baptism services out there. It is just a cool, cool place. And then over here, the Golan Heights, which are disputed with the Assyrians. With Assyrians. So uh, you've got to be careful to go to the east side. It's the same in biblical times, right? That's where the Gentiles lived, on the other side. Uh, so it was just the west side that Jews stuck to. So I don't know. Just to see it, it makes it so much more real. This is not Valhalla. This is not long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. This is a real place. It's only 18 miles uh, from Nazareth to the Sea of Galilee. So, you know, you walk 18 miles in the hills, and I'm sure you feel it, but it's not anything like the journey to Jerusalem that Jesus will make. So I've got a couple maps um, that we should use to sort of place ourselves for the sea. Yeah, this makes me laugh. Okay. Um, so there's Nazareth. We got it. Uh, we got Canaan. So what does Jesus do there? 
He goes to a wedding. He makes liquor for his mother. Um, so Magdala, Capernaum, and Bethsaida, um, these are all little fishing towns, and Jesus will draw his disciples primarily from it. But I think if we showed Jesus this, or anybody from his day, they would laugh at us. Imagine I have a map of Texas that leaves out Dallas, Austin, and Houston. That's what this map is doing. It's leaving off basically every important town. So you've got Trailer Park. Um, I don't even know this is a town. It's just you know, like a rest stop where people drink. Um, and then these little fishing towns. Um, there's maybe 300 people, maybe, in Nazareth, maybe. Uh, and these towns, a little bit bigger, 500, 600, but they're, they're just little bumps in the road. Let me show you another map. Uh, it's, it's a little more accurate. Actually, can we go to the next one? I think it's better. Yeah, this one's better. So Tiberius, it is a huge capital, 10,000 people. And if Jesus is coming this way, he's going right by it. Again, it's mentioned only in passing because it's the capital of Antipas, which is the son of Herod. So he's building his capital over there. Um, but this is Houston. You can't talk about Galilee without Tiberias. The Jews today, uh, well, the rabbis at least, call this lake uh, the Lake of Tiberias. Like I said, they named it after an emperor. But you have Magdala, um, Kinneret, which originally was given the name, um, Capernaum, Chorazin. There's an amazing uh, synagogue there, um, which we know Jesus went to. It's, it's black. It's, it's, really, it's really striking. And then Bethsaida, um, a little fishy town. So this is the world that we will explore. Um, such a massive body of water, great for fishing. Uh, this will inspire a whole new industry because who cannot get enough fish? The Romans. So the, the primary interest for Israel was Jezreel Valley, which Jesus grew up next to, but he will do no small part of his ministry, just this little, little sliver right there. So... That's a tour of Israel without the stomach ache. There you go. <laughs> Questions? Richard? Oh, I'm sorry. Do they know or we know? Up, up close. They say there's a, a, that gap between his childhood and then he came on the scene. Are they starting to figure out what was in the middle? Yes, and but we'll talk a lot about that. What did he do for the first 30 years of his life? And I think it's more obvious in the text than we give it credit for, but we're not used to that culture, so it, it seems obscure to us. You know, uh, Christian imagination or Catholic imagination uh, created him into a carpenter with his dad, right? Remember that bumper sticker? Uh, my boss is a Jewish carpenter. Oy. As Jesus would say, oy vey. Um, 
There's so much wrong with that. I mean, yes, he's Jewish, but he, he's not making wood shelves, okay? His dad was a stonemason. So if he was working with his dad, he w would have been in Sipporahs, um, busting up rocks. Um, but he seems to have picked a different route. And you probably know the answer, but I'll save it until we will do that one whole night. His education. Because we have signs of it in, in Nazareth. They may have been poor, but... They educated their kids in Jewish tradition. So, good question. Any others? Does it look like what you imagined? Yeah. All right. Got this one little goodie for you so that you can always remember the double meaning, as Pastor Kurt said, of Jesus being from Nazareth and actually being the netzer the root or, the, or the, the sprout himself. The second to the last way that Jesus describes himself in the Bible is that. So this is Revelation twenty two sixteen. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And then the last thing he says is... Anybody? Yes, I'm coming soon. What he thought about saying is, don't do anything till I get back. <laughs> no, just kidding. So let's pray. Father our God, we give you thanks to walk in your son's path today. We know on the surface it may not seem like the most earth-shattering thing. But this was your home. This is what you loved. This is what you saw. When you first learned of who we were as people, when you were a man, you saw it played out here. So with love and attention of a disciple following their rabbi, we walk back through your footsteps to see your hometown to see the struggles of humanity that were laid out all around you. Father God, in these pictures, we see a serene agricultural environment. We know from your, your word that it was not peaceful. There was smoke in the air, people being killed, nailed on crosses, Romans destroying villages, People rising up in rage and anger, performing violent terrorist acts. The world was tearing itself apart. And yet, you stood there as a green shoot, a sign of new life, reminding your people and all people that we are God's children, that we were created for a garden. Our world may have cut down all of the trees and moved on thinking that we knew better. But you came in the form of a stonemason's son and were that shoot to bring life to the tree again. May we understand that was a tree of life offered for us, that through your sacrifice and being the lamb, being the root of David, you provided a new path for humanity, that we might choose a path that doesn't lead to death, destruction, enslavement, hatred, showed us a better way. So help us tonight 
as we look at you thousands of years later, to look at those own parts of our life that are Galilee's, places that people have given up on, places that they've said are too rough, that neighborhood is too bad, nothing good can come from there. That's where you grew up and where you do your best work. Help us to truly be your disciples and be covered in your dust. In your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Good night, y'all.